Well, hello, what a pleasure it is to join you for this set of reflections, thinking around what we've learned in the last number of months as the SARS-CoV-2 virus has made its way into society and changed our lives irrevocably. And with apologies to Charles Dickens, my, my mind turned to the, the best of times, the worst of times, an age of wisdom, an age of foolishness, an epoch of belief, the epoch of incredulity. And I think as you read through this, you can imagine all of the different uh, uh, elements in this COVID journey that we've traveled together to which I refer. And I guess most of us now think back to the time around January 2020 when everything changed. This is the first report that the BBC put online about a, a mysterious illness in Wuhan, China. The, the idea might be that it was a coronavirus that was causing that problem. We'd barely finished celebrating Hogmanay here in Scotland. And of course, that takes a fair bit of recovery time before we were facing this. Well, what was it? Barely a few weeks later, we knew that it was a medical and societal tragedy. Everything changed. This is a quotation from a physician in Bergamo. And certainly from the European perspective, it was in Italy that we first really understood the magnitude and the challenge of what faced us. We converted airplanes into hospitals, exhibition centers. This is the Scottish Exhibition Center into hospitals and our hospitals became unrecognizable. But not everything changed. You see, if we go back to Osler, that great informant of modern day medicine, you will draw from your errors the very lessons which may enable you to avoid the repetition. And I have to say that whilst it has been the worst of times in so many ways, it's also been the best of times. So many things learned, so many new attributes brought into modern medicine. And what I wanted to do was to reflect with you on what this dreadful virus has done in terms of provoking dramatic change in the way in which medicine is done, rheumatology is done. And I'm going to reflect first of all on pathogenetic lessons and draw parallels with rheumatology. And then I'm going to throw the net a little wider and think with you about some of the key lessons that we have learned and the key changes that I think we'll see in rheumatology in the coming months and years. Well, of course, you know that the SARS-CoV-2 genome is, is, is related to the bat beta coronavirus. It's precise entry into the human space is not entirely clear, but we do know that at some point there has been an animal to human transfer. This uh, coronavirus is so named because of the corona-like appearance. It's, its genome particularly well characterized and now sequenced thousands of times a day around the world. But the protein that really matters is this spike glycoprotein here shown very beautifully in this electron micrograph uh, given to me by David Bella, who is the deputy head of our MRC Centre for Virus Research in the University here in Glasgow, and who is, uh, amongst others, leading the UK's response to the coronavirus pandemic. But you see this crown-like appearance. So this is the virus that has caused the problem. What problem did it cause? Well, again, we now understand very well a complex clinical syndrome. Uh, I shall show you data gathered here from the ISERIC consortium, a pre-existent consortium which repurposed itself to try and understand exactly what coronavirus was doing in the population with uh, population level data gathering and also biobanking, extensive biobanking, uh, a shared effort up and down the United Kingdom. You'll see the UK is separated from Europe in this particular graph out of deference to the, uh, the, the Brexit agreement, which is not something I'm particularly happy about, but there we go. 
And this is what the Isseric cohort found. It found clusters of symptoms. And you'll see, well, of course, there was a, a large cluster consisting of cough, respiratory uh, illness, no surprise there. But for us as rheumatologists, really important that there was a, a cluster in which joint pain, myalgia, fatigue dominated, and perhaps for those of us seeing the connective tissue space, odd rashes, seizures, confusions, skin ulcers, bleeding disorders. And so already the symptom clusters a heads up that this was likely to be a systemic disease, which we as rheumatologists were likely to have a strong sense of clinical understanding and affinity for. And so it has proven. And so the systemic manifestations of COVID-19 are very well known to us. This cartoon gathers their key features across the different tissues of interest. This could almost be the kind of picture that we routinely put in our textbooks when we teach our medical students about connective tissue disease. But of course, the outcomes of the COVID-19 disease state are pretty devastating. These data from the United Kingdom, but they map pretty well around the world. Around a quarter of patients died and the, the ward care and critical care numbers look broadly similar here. I think that's just a little bit misleading because we've been very selective in who in the UK went into the ICU. A devastating disorder for those, the small proportion, but nevertheless rather significant when the whole population's at risk who develop severe underlying disease. We also, from this and many other studies, have understood that there were comorbidities, which I have to say as a rheumatologist looked terribly familiar. Poor outcome to COVID, diabetes, high blood pressure, underlying cerebrovascular disease, coronary heart disease, and obesity. These are all risk factors that we live with in our daily practice in rheumatology. So not only are they clinically relevant in terms of adjudicating how COVID patients will do, but perhaps there are lessons here about interactivity when a viral induced immune response has an interface with a host that has these risk factors. And particularly relevant, I think, as we move to a peri and then post-COVID life, we should remember that the psychological impact of the COVID pandemic has been extraordinary on a background of high levels of depression already prevalent in people with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, rheumatoid, lupus, and so the list goes on. And special vigilance, I think, going forward for the psychological imposition that COVID has placed already and will yet place on the rheumatology population. I mentioned that a small proportion of the population do very badly. And this is because we are immunologically heterogeneous, just as we are gloriously mixed up in our lives. The, the great diversity of humanity, one of our most affecting and, 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 and lovable traits as a species. But when you are exposed to, if you like, the, the Russian roulette of viral infection, then gaps appear in the armamentarium. And we now understand that that proportion of patients who do badly have an underlying genetic risk, particularly in and around the type one interferon pathways. They have comorbidities, as I've already alluded. They're older and they have probably, therefore, virus-dependent factors that can interact with that host domain. And you can see, therefore, on the right-hand side of this slide that a very aggressive immunologic response in that smaller group of patients leads to very poor outcomes indeed and changes the dynamic moving from infection to inflammatory disease. 
And this is time dependent. Here is a notional cartoon moving from left to right through the early infectious stages, through what was known as a pulmonary dominant phase to eventually something which I think is best termed hyperinflammatory, although you will hear people talk of this as a COVID cytokine storm. I'm going to come to that because it's a very interesting concept in terms of how we as rheumatologists think in terms of, well, what is the, the, the underlying pathogenesis of COVID. So here in one slide, I put together what we think are the unifying features of the coronavirus pathogenesis. There is undoubtedly a genetic and epigenetic imprint, which is immunologic, um, coagulation, endothelial and fibrotic propensity. This will change the way in which immune system activation occurs and tissue repair follows. There's clearly an environmental impact, smoking, potentially neutral, diet, definitely not. And other host factors, particularly hypertension, obesity, cardiometabolic syndrome, and especially age associated with immune senescence, that is gaps in our repertoire to respond, but also inflammaging, an underlying propensity to just a little bit more inflammation for any given trigger. And so any one or several of these coming together, the butterfly's wing triggering eventually in the context of COVID disease, the chaotic tragedy that is hyperimmune disease. And I must say, I've never really liked the concept of a cytokine storm in its own right. I've always preferred immunological chaos or chaotic cellular dysregulation. Let me give you one example of the many, many studies now published. This is a paper from Yale published in, in Nature just a few months ago, in which a small number of people, patients and healthcare workers were compared for the way in which their peripheral blood looked when people were either healthy or developing coronavirus infection. And some patients did very badly and some did well. And this is what they found. This is a truly terrifying slide until I tell you that it's actually rather simple. They measured the increase or decrease in a whole range of cytokines shown here on the right-hand side of this heat map. They then asked the computer to randomly cluster those cytokines in people who did well as opposed to those who did not do well. And cluster three was associated with people who generally didn't do well at all. And you'll see that the cytokines tended not to go as a single cytokine. It wasn't just IL-6 or just IL-1. It was large families of cytokines, which when they were taken together, were actually rather predictive for mortality. So what we actually are dealing with is not unfamiliar to the rheumatological eye. We deal routinely with diseases in which there are numerous different immunological attributes switched on simultaneously. Many cytokines, many cells, and a tissue response, does that sound familiar, with an underlying genetic antecedent and comorbidities like obesity, cardiac, I don't need to go any further. Of course, we're looking at a syndrome that is highly reminiscent of the challenges that we face in routine practice in managing complex polygenic immune diseases of the rheumatic system. And we know that those can be amenable to selective immunological intervention. We've learned that giving biologics to block IL-6 receptor, TNF, is highly efficacious in people with rheumatoid arthritis. We know that blocking IL-17, P19, efficacious in people with psoriasis and now psoriatic arthritis. We know that targeting T cells and B cells, and more recently targeting intracellular signaling pathways is highly efficacious. 
It teaches us that the immune system, although um, rather uh, redundant in some respects, does have checkpoints at which intervention can be possible. But we don't achieve, maybe with the exception of psoriasis, we don't achieve high hurdle responses with single interventions. By and large, we need to use combinations. And yet we went into the COVID crisis believing that a single intervention could change everything. We should probably therefore have expected that the response that would be most likely to benefit people who were suffering the hyper response of this immunological chaotic response to coronavirus infection were going to respond to steroids and so it proved. There was a reduction in mortality uh, and uh, in invasive mechanical ventilation patients, particularly in those recipients of dexamethasone as compared with usual care. This is a very, very large trial being conducted on an ongoing basis in the United Kingdom, a platform study, almost all of us contributing patients into this using our national health service. But this was a very powerful way to generate control data to show benefit or not, as the case may be of an intervention. Remember that this study followed a whole series of trials in which hydroxychloroquine had been eventually shown not to be effective, but not before the drug was unavailable to many of our connective tissue disease patients because it was being used supposedly to prevent or reduce the severity of coronavirus infection. Because of the cytokine storm idea, unsurprisingly, tocilizumab was used widely, and there's been a really controversial story around tocilizumab's value. This is an earliest study coming from Sophia Ramira and colleagues. These are actually rheumatologists who looked at uh, two groups of patients in the Dutch healthcare system who received either methylprednisolone and then tocilizumab or, or standard of care. And they were able to show quite significant benefits for those patients who received methylpred and, and tocilizumab. However, as you're also probably aware, randomized controlled trials using tocilizumab variously showed benefit, no benefit, marginal benefit. And then the recovery study reverting back to the BBC, which is where one reads all of one's medical outcomes these days, uh, the, the, the idea was, was demonstrated in a very large number of patients that probably tocilizumab does indeed diminish poor outcomes. Added value in the use of tocilizumab, added value in the treatment of COVID, but almost certainly patient selection really matters. And then a paper finally published in New England Journal just a few days ago, um, demonstrating that baricitinib and remdesivir uh, will, will offer benefits over placebo and remdesivir. I, I've shown you this rather nice depiction. It comes from the New England Journal paper itself, but I thought it was a nice, easy way of just reminding ourselves of the key findings, that there was a, a, a reduction in median time to recovery of one day and a, a time to recovery, which was, I think, quite a bit um, more impressive when one looked at patients who were receiving high-flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation. And there wasn't, at least obviously, an SAE trade-off. And so we see uh, baricitinib, a broader spectrum cytokine inhibitor, consistent much more with the rheumatological interpretation of complex immune dysfunction. The, moving away from a single cytokine to a complex cytokine inhibition pathway, this kind of makes biological sense to me. And of course, molecular immunology coming to the rescue, not only with these extraordinary biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs, but also with vaccination here, an original description from around 1800, the, the idea that Dr. Jenner had that we might inoculate. 
And so I could show you one of several vaccine studies now published. I've, I've chosen to show an RNA vaccine because it's such a new technology. So extraordinary to go from pretty much a standing start to only a few months later, a quite clear demonstration that this vaccine reduces the likelihood of COVID infection quite clearly. And we now know from subsequent follow-up studies, even studies here in Scotland, that those patients once vaccinated are less likely to require hospitalization and happily seem less likely to progress to severe disease, even if they do contract coronavirus infection. Moving beyond biology, though, we've learned so much more, haven't we? And I thought it might be useful just to reflect for a few minutes on the lessons beyond the immunobabble, which those of you who know me is one of my favorite things to chat about. But when I think about it, rheumatology has probably changed forever. We're moving to a new reality, and I'm going to just think out loud around Congress's education trials and even the fundamental relationship between healthcare services and the economy. But the first and most obvious change we've all come to terms with is the, 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 the probably the beginning of the end of the traditional consultation. Um, what a patronizing uh, photograph this is, but it's gonna change very, very quickly as we move to virtual, either telephone or virtual internet-based interactions with our patients. Many things that we as clinicians will need to learn, many things that our patients will need to learn. We're going to have to find out how to evaluate joints. How do we empower patients when we aren't sitting in the room with them? How do we ensure that they have the tools and information necessary to allow that shared decision-making, which is so fundamental to the delivery of good rheumatology practice? How can we make a patient-centered approach work when we interact with them from a distance? How do we ensure the essential humanity that marks the physician and health professional's relationship with their patient to ensure that we do not in any way endanger that fundamental humanity? I'm actually pretty concerned about that. And we certainly will be moving, I think, to a hybrid blended model. And some things that you might want to think about in this peri-post-COVID world for your patients, I think you're going to have to work really hard on individualizing decisions. People are traumatized. People are still scared. We need to think really carefully about the comorbidities that I've mentioned already. And we better make sure we have a good vaccine history, hadn't we? Because, you know, we've seen almost no influenza this winter in the UK. But maybe next year will be different. Maybe without the social distancing measures, which we hope society will move to, maybe vaccine history will become really crucial. Maybe educating patients in terms of hygiene and infection control becomes part of our normal care, maybe part of our normal duty of care. We're going to have to think about the wider circumstances our patients face. We're about to enter a very significant economic depression. We're going to have to really think hard about the treatments our patients are receiving the worries that they may have. Will my vaccine work, doctor? Well, we're, we're doing a trial right now in the UK, the Optus study to, to answer just that. We're looking at responses to vaccine in 5,000 people with cancer and immune-mediated diseases just to answer precisely that question. So we're going to need data to navigate these next few months and years together. We're going to need a, a medical evidence base to help us navigate that journey, aren't we? And this is one of the areas for me of enormous concern, actually. Medical publishing has changed beyond all recognition. I just 
uploaded this from PubMed a couple of days ago, 106,000 patient papers published just in the last 12 months alone. How on earth do editors, reviewers, and authors produce more than 100,000 papers and maintain the quality of peer review, the quality of editorial practice? It's a real challenge. And I think we will have to refresh our memories of how the medical literature works and be very careful to ensure that we don't lose quality. Will our approach to publication and peer review change? I rather suspect it's changed already, and I don't think it's going back anytime soon. We, we have to remember, though, that quality and governance and peer review are absolutely fundamental to safe clinical practice because that's the evidence base we use to deliver safe clinical practice. And we're going to have to trade off the speed of review, the urge to publish first, that falls both on authors, but also I have to say on editors. And we've seen that very clearly in the literature in the last few months. Let us balance speed with accuracy. Let us remind ourselves that the purpose of publication is to inform good clinical practice in our field. And that I think is something that we will have to reflect very deeply on in the coming months. Of course, we need that evidence to inform practice and without an evidence base, I think ACR and, and ULR and other learned societies deserve enormous credit for stepping forward and even in an evidence vacuum, at least making recommendations, at least offering guidelines as to how and why practitioners should and can make decisions because it wasn't as if rheumatology went away. We had to make decisions in a really challenging background. And so uh, you, you, I'm sure, like me, are using the, the ACR and, and ULR websites regularly for that update to inform our practice and to ensure that the decisions we make are commensurate with those that our colleagues and peers would make, optimizing the safety for our patients. And that evidence is also going to be informed, I believe, by a very dramatic change in the way in which clinical trials in rheumatology will be performed. We're moving now much more to virtual and social media recruitment. We're moving to governance by post electronic consent. And we're changing the use of patient reported outcomes and the connectivity now between government, industry, charity and other collaborative funders is beyond recognition from what it was just 12 months ago. Consider the way in which this hydroxychloroquine study was performed in which patients were found actually in a virtual environment to determine exactly what efficacy was potentially achievable. And even the development of drugs themselves is going to change beyond all recognition. Remember that artificial intelligence was amongst the first approaches to determine that baricitinib may not only have immune modulatory potential, we knew that because it's an inhibitor of JAK1 and JAK2, but also through structure homology and AI algorithms that it might be an antiviral. And that provoked a rapid assimilation of baricitinib data, first of all, and then clinical trialing. And this is going to be rolled out time and time again in silico discovery will dominate drug discovery. Modeling will make the best choices. And then eventually we as clinicians will trial them in the real world. Congresses, oh, what can I say? How we wish we were going to Paris this year, how we wish we'd been in Washington DC last year. ULAR, ACR and many other meetings now in the virtual space. Um, is this good or bad? Well, on, on the one hand, it's, uh, it's great for the green agenda. It's very good for equality and diversity. In ULAR, we had many thousand more delegates attending for far less 
um, outlay on their part. And so in many respects, the, the quality was maintained, the green agenda was supported, uh, and, and, and inclusiveness became part of our activity. But we lost networking. We lost some of that essential intangible piece of being together, thinking together, being excited together, which, of course, underpins so much of clinical science, talking to each other, listening, bouncing ideas off each other. And that, I think, also is going to have to be thought about. People are thinking that the world is shrinking with virtual interaction. Well, it is. But so, too, is that human interactome shrinking. And we need that to really make creativity possible. And I think to preserve creativity, we will have to meet. Of course, it's impossible to think of the, the virtual Congress without thinking about how the whole space of medical education is going to evolve. We're going to move far more to virtual learning. Will we lose international exchange? Will we, will we lose that cultural knowledge acquisition, the exchange of information? Will we do away with, with hierarchies? Um, will we still teach in a way that is relevant within our society? Will we learn from other societal solutions? These are not rhetorical questions. We're going to have to find the answer. We are undoubtedly moving to a blended learning, a blended medical education, a, a blended CME environment. But let's be very careful that we don't lose the fundaments that are the interpersonal relationships which make education the same. And so the, the worst of times and the best of times, I think most people recognize that medical education in our university systems worldwide will never be the same again. And maybe just a little subtler. This is an article that really appealed to me. It, it, it's one of my own uh, personal thoughts, which is the, the inequality in access to healthcare, inequality in delivery of healthcare, unequal outcomes. We know that the Bain community have been very significantly adversely impacted by COVID-19, but that's not actually a new idea. Here's a paper from Hilary Capel, my colleagues in Glasgow, more than two decades ago, pointing out that social deprivation and poor background environment is absolutely associated with poorer outcomes in rheumatology. And so I hope going forward, there will be a, a far keener recognition that social deprivation and BAME communities deserve every bit the same recognition as other populations. Surely a tremendous message for us to get across post-COVID. We've learned about partnerships, haven't we? Your partnership in the UK between Versus Arthritis, one of our funding charities, and of course they've provided information, but they also provide a conduit to us and our patients. Partnership across borders, the amazing interaction that was the Global Rheumatology Alliance, a social media phenomenon. We joined that and we were happy so to do in ULAR with our the, the COVID database and now the COVAX database. Delighted to say that the ULAR COVAX database is now opening up well beyond the ULAR family of countries. We are collaborating, we are inclusive, we are open for communal business to solve the problems that our patients face. And that is going to be the next massive challenge. The economy has taken a really substantial hit during the coronavirus pandemic. And to some extent, politicians have had to mitigate that risk and worry about the future health of the economy against the imperative to offer immediate healthcare needs and treatments. But that cannot go on 
indefinitely. Vaccination will help, but there has to be a reckoning, there has to be an understanding that societal need in the economy, if not addressed, will lead to healthcare burden well beyond coronavirus as cancers, heart disease, diabetes are increased in their prevalence and impact as the economy continues to take what is likely to be slow recovery. And for that, we also need to talk collaboratively. We need to work together around the world, ACR, EULAR, APLAR, AFLAR, all of these societies coming together to collaborate and ensure that the voice and needs of people with rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases is never lost. That voice needs to be heard even louder now in the months and years to come than at any time in the past. And we can speak best in harmony across the world. So let me summarize what I've learned in this best and worst of times. I've learned that integrated discovery will deliver extraordinary clinical translation. Look where we've got to in terms of treatment and especially vaccination. We've learned that partnerships and collaboration should be the new norm, be they thematic, be they transnational, be they virtually driven. And virtual medicine is now. It's no longer an option. The virtual revolution is here and now, and we should embrace it. These, ladies and gentlemen, are the Scottish water kelpies, the river ghosts. Of course, they're mythical, but they listen carefully. Some of you may be the kelpie on the right, laughing hysterically, McInnes has lost it. Some of you may be the Kelpie on the left, listening attentively and considering perhaps many of the best lessons of the last year will sustain us in the decade to come. Thank you very much indeed for your attention.